I feel like people a lot of times have the perception that it's it's one or the other. Like you're either being a savvy business person or you're doing the right thing. And I firmly believe that even if you can't measure it exactly, like those two things are aligned. And I'll get that feedback all the time, even with our team. Like I'm super passionate about, I want to help our coaches make more money. And as they continue to grow and expand here, and I think people think that's, oh, you're being so altruistic or whatever. And I'm like, no, if they're making more money and they're growing with us, they're going to do even better work. They are going to be the best in the business because they're attracted here. And that's what we want to do. This is Get Shit Done, a podcast that dives into how women entrepreneurs are gaining traction and growing companies that scale generational impact. Each episode is real talk from women founders who have successfully scaled companies. You'll learn what they did to grow, how they did it, and the tools they used to get it done so you can too. To get access to more episodes of Get Shit Done, along with free traction tools, head on over to shegetshitdone.com. Welcome back to the Get Shit Done podcast, queens and comrades. I'm your host, Alex Batdorf, a.k.a. Chief Get Shit Done Officer. And hold up, did you rate and review our podcast yet? It will only take you 20 seconds, so do it now if you haven't. And you can do it while I'm talking through this intro and you will be done before it even ends, okay? This also really helps us show up weekly to help you get it done. You wouldn't want us to have to stop, would you? JK, we love it too much to stop, but we would really appreciate your support. And if you are an OG Get Shit Done queen or comrade, you can probably recite this with us by now. But if you're new, did you know that women own nearly half of businesses, but we only generate 4% of total revenues? That's why our motto is fuck 4%. Our goal here every week is to teach you the traction strategies and tactics with the tools you need to get shit done and grow on your own terms so we can scale generational impact, y'all. So today, we will be breaking down how my girl, Nicole Wood, founder of Ama La Vida, was able to bootstrap and scale a multi-million dollar career coaching company in just six years while doubling revenues in 2021, okay? And here's what I thought was super major key about how she pulled this off, is that she takes a tech-enabled approach, not a tech-first approach, because no one cares about your AI, They care about what problem you're solving and the value you add to their life. So buckle up, babe. Here's what we're going to learn today from Nicole. How a high touch or what we like to call white glove approach has been major key to their scaling success. And no, you don't have to build a tech platform to scale successfully. Same way you don't have to raise VC to be successful. The only thing that matters is doing it on your own terms. And you're going to learn how it will never be perfect So the most valuable thing you as a founder can be doing is running experiments throughout your scaling journey. This has been key to Nicole's scaling success. In addition, you'll learn how human capital was the most valuable asset for them and how it will be for you too. And finally, we're going to learn how to take the pressure off of ourselves by getting fixated on the headlines because y'all the startup space ain't nothing but smoke and mirrors so that headline you saw is probably nothing but some bullshit and lies okay 
And side note, did you know that there are now more PR people than true journalists? So basically, everything you're seeing is just a story. So breathe. And before we get started, if you want our weekly traction briefings, this is basically your traction playbooks every single week with tools and templates. Head on over to shegetshitdone.com slash join, and we're going to slide up in your inbox and help you get it done weekly. But without further ado, Queen Nicole Wood. Nicole, welcome to Get Shit Done. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. She has a, if, if we don't have this up and you can't see the recording, she has a yellow background behind her and it's so like joyful. Gold's my favorite color. So I like yellows in general. Also, I'm a Leo. So I think it's just that too. But she's in Chicago. As you all know, that is my Kevin Bacon, my six degrees of Kevin Bacon always comes back to Chicago in some way. So we're so happy she's she's here. And Nicole, before we hop on into all the amazing things you've accomplished in your business over the last six years, we always like to take it back to what you were doing before to give a little bit of context. So yeah, let us know, like, what were you doing before you started Ama La Vida? Yeah, I guess to take it even probably as far back as more than you intended, but as is relevant, I think for my story probably starts back in college. So I went to school at Arizona State, fantastic school. However, when I decided I wanted to go into management consulting while in college, it just wasn't a school that the firms recruited from for many reasons, geography, reputation, all kinds of other stuff that we could talk about. So I hustled and I cold called and this was pre LinkedIn days. So I got them to give me like a printout of all the alumni that had gone on to work in consulting. And I just started calling people and hustled my way into a job. And so I was so grateful to get there and thought that, you know, I'd thought of the perfect job. I had landed the perfect job. I got to intern in Chicago in the summer, which is a dream. And then when I went back full time, winter hit, it was dark, it was cold. And I quickly realized that this wasn't my lifetime job and it wasn't the dream job that I thought I would have for the next 30, 40 years, which doesn't even exist anymore. But in that moment, I was pretty demoralized and just disillusioned with the workplace in general and just thought, like, what now? And this really overwhelming sense of, I guess, failure, but more so just confusion about what to do about that feeling. And it wasn't until luckily I was doing well still in the firm and had been promoted and they gave me a coach a leadership coach that I started to sort through that and was like, this is a really great process and resource and something I never would have sought out for myself. Why? And why do I see all of these people around me who are feeling really similarly where they're like, what do I want to do with my life if it's not this? Why aren't they getting that same level of support? And so it was through that experience. And then not right away. It wasn't like, boom, I quit. And this perfect business idea came to me. I went on to work for a startup, but over time it kind of materialized into what became Mama La Vida. It's so funny. You mentioned going to Arizona state. I have a few friends that have gone and I was just in Arizona and one of my friends I was with was like, oh yeah, that's the party school. But I, before I went to Phoenix, I was in Tucson and one of my friends, we were considered to go to the fancy school. So I went to UFC, he went to Princeton. And when we look back at that experience, what he and I both did well was we were at parties all the time. <laughs> so, and we were of the select few. Like at UFC, there we everyone that partied, it was like a couple hundred of us of like thousands. Yeah. Um, 
And we would see, but that's a lot of those people we still do like have contact, do business with today. And I think sometimes a lot of the schools that are highly regarded or whatever um, do not do the best job of socializing students for the real world, which I yeah. think a lot of these quote unquote party schools, like that's one of the biggest things you need to learn in life. And especially sales. If you're a founder, we say this all the time, sell or die. And sales are all about relationships. So it's not necessarily just going out and getting like hammered. It's also about the connections you make with people because I have gone to many parties <laughs> when I was like a 19 year old, 20 year old yeah. with people I've done business with today because they're like, totally. that girl, I got you. So, so glad that was just top of mind for me. Yeah. Like the thing that I feel like a lot of these students that become socially awkward, it's like you have all these talents, but you can't activate them because you don't have anybody that can help you get to where you're trying to go. So Shout out to the party school. Yeah. Well, it's so funny. Anyway, I mean, every school is a party school if you want it to be, you you know, or (laughs) to bucket a school of like 70,000 people as one thing is just kind of ridiculous. But yeah, I totally agree. And I think because of that reputation and because I had that kind of background and well, if I'm going to get it done, I'm going to have to find a way that's kind of carried through into my founder experience for sure. Love that. So Okay, you had this career coach, and this was actually before it was really that mainstream. So mm-hmm. tell me what problem is Amalavita solving for? Yeah, we do coach across careers, really where it originated, partly because that was my journey and what I was focused on. And we've since expanded to leadership, life, health, and wellness. So we're really solving a whole host of problems, but it all comes back to really our name. And Amalavita means love life in Spanish. And that's what we want to help people do. And so whether that's you're working for a terrible boss or you're in a job that's making you unhappy, or you just can't quite get your sort of behaviors and habits to match your goals, you're not loving your life. You're not living your life to its fullest. And we just fundamentally believe that that's a human right. And so through coaching, that's kind of our mechanism and our approach to help people love their lives and whatever that looks like for them. Which is so timely given the space we're in and seeing all these people, quite the, the great resignation. I, I've heard reassessment, which I think is way more powerful. Like yeah. companies cannot continue showing up the way they have because there is a lack of a, a human connection. You can't treat humans like machines. And so- Speaking of, when you and I originally spoke, what I really loved about your approach is you said, you know, we are tech enabled. We are not tech first. And I've said this to so many founders in our tribe, that white glove, especially when you're starting out, is powerful. Everybody wants to build the tech, build the platform, build the da 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 proprietary AI, all these stupid buzzwords. (laughs) And I'm just like, The fact of the matter is whenever you use any of these apps, like an Uber, no one ever says, I love Uber because the algorithms got me to where I needed to go. No, you love Mm -hmm. Uber because I had a great driver, great human. Totally. It got me there quickly and with this price. No one ever talks about the tech. And so I love that you said we're tech enabled first. And you all are the OGs, one of the OGs in this space. There's so much around career coaching now where I'm like, I can't hear another goddamn person say they're a coach. (laughs) everyone's a coach and it's a huge growing market and that's exciting but you all are literally one of the ogs you have been able to bootstrap this company to the multi-million dollar point when you actually grew and doubled year over year which is super exciting makes sense for the market so 
Can you walk us through, and I think this is important for founders to hear, is why do you all take the tech-enabled approach versus tech-first approach? Yeah, I think you're spot on with how you described the Uber example, and that's how we think about it too. Like every company is a tech company in some capacity nowadays, and we should be using technology to help deliver an amazing experience for our clients. So we're focused on tech to the extent that it helps improve that experience, that we're not being hindered by the technology where it's frustrating to work with us in any given way. So we're definitely investing in it. We're focused on it, but it still comes down to the human experience and why people are here. We have what we call culture commandments. So we have nine of them, which is a lot, but they're all important. One of them is our clients are a heartbeat. So many service-oriented companies have some kind of something about that. But I think what's unique about what we do is people are coming to us with like their biggest fears, their insecurities, their dreams, the things that maybe they've never told anybody before, never even said out loud before, like that's serious. And we should take a lot of responsibility and care in how we handle that. And so when someone's sharing that and we spit out some crappy thing from an algorithm, like that's not respecting what that person is committing to in that moment. And so we need that tech to help enable making the right coach pairings or help make coaching more affordable and accessible, which is important to us. But at the end of the day, it's the connection between that coachee and the coach that matters. And we want that to be felt all the way throughout the experience with us. So when we get that survey feedback from our clients and are like, I felt safe and heard from the second I went to your website, like that's what's important to me. Not that we have the slickest platform necessarily. Which I think is super important. And we, I mean, I think in the past decade, we've seen this over and over is that when we're trying to set, quote unquote, saturate markets and just grow to grow, it strips the human element and the best investors you will ever have will be the humans that are investing in it. And the best investors you're going to have ever have is that. So when we are constantly obsessed with these buzzwords and saying, we're building this tech, the, the biggest tech thing of whatever. And it's just like, you're missing the, the entire mark because it's never about the tech. That right. is that is a vehicle, but it will never be the core. And when you make it the core, you've already failed. So I love that it's high touch here. And you know what's really interesting to me about going into this more white glove and what you've been able to do in terms of your growth, I would love to kind of take it back to, you know, your go-to-market initially, because everyone's saying you got to optimize, you got to break shit, you got to go fast. And something that I really loved when you and I initially spoke was around experiments and that, you know, you, 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 one of the things you said was like, it will never be perfect. So you just have to do it and experiment. And I particularly see, and in our tribe, our team sees us with founders often, and especially with women, we want to get it right so bad initially because we're socialized and shamed in perfection. And you can't really grow and scale significantly if you're stuck in that trap. So can you walk us through, like, what was that go-to-market for you initially? And how did you experiment to optimize for outcomes? So let's maybe start with what you did really well. And then we're going to go to where experiments failed. <laughs> so let's yeah. start with how did you experiment really well initially? And then we'll go to the other side. I think just even conceptually, I was on a call with our all of our life coaches earlier today. And that singular thing came up as one of the top things that we're actually working on with our clients is this need to 
get everything perfect, but also feel like you're ready before you do something when so often it's the other way around. You do the thing and then you, you move along in your mindset and your confidence thereafter. And so that was so crucial. And it's in some ways embarrassing looking back. And that's always a measure for me of like, we're doing something right when I'm embarrassed about what we did before. It means we've made a lot of progress. And then at the same time, there are so many things that we tried and failed at at the beginning that just weren't the right thing for the business at the time. And that's a lesson I've had to learn is that there are very few inherently good or bad ideas. It's just what's the right thing for your business at its place and its evolution. So when we first launched, we tried a membership-based model and we had different tiers of memberships, everything from a completely virtual one that just focused on our e-coaching technology to groups and one-on-one. We were so naive and I'm sure you hear this from a lot of founders of just like, oh, we thought people would talk and find us. And we had such an underdeveloped marketing strategy that in retrospect is so clear, but at the moment we didn't. And so we eventually scrapped the virtual one. We struggled with the group one because it requires the level of volume that we just didn't have to have cohorts of coaches. And then we just really focused on that one-on-one coaching. And that's what we found was our sweet spot that we did really, really well. And the hybrid approach of the one-on-one and the e-coaching technology in between sessions. So what we did was build in a software format, the experience of working with a coach so that a lot of those surface level questions or reflections you can do on your own time. So when you get into session, your coach is already saying, I'm actually going to challenge you on that. Or I noticed this theme. Have you thought about that? So you're accomplishing the same thing with fewer sessions that makes it more affordable and scalable and reaching new audiences. So we found we did that really well. And then it took 70,000 iterations of kind of a packaging and the marketing around it to figure out actually how to scale and grow it. Mm. So what, so how did you navigate that process? Because we will talk to founders about experimenting. And when you're experimenting, there's stuff that you're not going to get right initially. And how do you keep going? And so for you, when you did realize this thing failed, what allowed you to kind of get your head out of the clouds and not take it so personally? So you can actually logically look and say, it's not like the whole thing failed, but this thing is, how do we get mm-hmm. to the next and make the next decision? Because sometimes when we get stuck up in, and I've done this before, we're so yeah. stuck on how we feel about it and we personalize it that it keeps us stagnant. So how did you navigate? You're like, we did 70,000 you know, iterations. Yeah. How did you navigate that process? And what advice would you have for other founders that are trying to navigate it as well in experiments? I think there was an emotional component and a very practical component, which came down to like dollars and cents. And the fact that we are bootstrapped, we didn't have a ton of runway to make mistakes. We didn't have lots of money to experiment with different marketing channels and lose it. So I think one of the first vendors we partnered with said something to me that really resonated, which was you're buying data essentially. So even if it doesn't work, you're getting, and you spent money on that thing, you didn't get nothing. You got data that shifts you in the direction towards the next thing that does work. And I think going back to the dollars and cents, part of how I was able to keep shifting and making the next move was like, this cannot fail. (laughs) Like I've got to pay my bills. And I, I was so 
I had such belief in the idea that I knew there was going to be a way to make the mechanics of it work because I so fundamentally at my core believed this thing needed to exist in the world. And so I feel like the money was, you know, a tough part of it, but also something that pushed me forward. And certainly it took, I mean, it took years in the beginning. If a client would cancel or we didn't win something, like I did take it personally. And I had a really hard time disconnecting and going and enjoying sushi with my husband when that was going on. And it took a while to get there. And now how I think about it and what I share with my team, because I see the team taking it really personally too, is it's just another piece of the puzzle that we have to solve. This whole thing, we believe in the idea. We believe in the service. We know we're doing good work. All the business stuff around it, it's just a big puzzle. And sometimes we're solving for the marketing piece. Sometimes we're solving for the sales piece. Sometimes we're solving for the client success piece. But all of these things are still data points and informative to us. They're not a reflection of who we are. That makes so much sense, especially being hard on yourself. Goodness, that, that's something I'm still in, on learning. And so you've done these experiments and you had to learn through the growing pains of getting out of your own head. What did you find ended up from this, this experimentation phase? And you still experiment today, but yeah. initially, what were the key channels for you all? And how did you learn that those were the best ones for you to lean into so you could cut the fat? Because experimenting, you have to, to kind of pick a lane, but you have to listen to the data. So how did yeah. you learn what was working? Do you mean like marketing channels? Yeah, like what was the, the go-to-market where you're like, you know, this, this channel is killer for us? Mm-hmm. I think for us, it's been really down funnel approaches that have worked. Um, you know, everyone was like, coaching businesses do so well on Facebook. We've tried it so many times and it's just, we've not been able to make the unit economics work for us in terms of converting leads. Like certainly from an awareness perspective, that works. So definitely Google ads. Yelp has actually been big for us where it's people who are already at the place where they're sold and considering coaching. And it's just a matter of who's the right vendor for them. A lot driven through events where we're publicizing maybe a webinar or a free coaching hour. And then we bring folks through the funnel that way. And so I think what that's indicative of, and we're starting to see shift is there's still so many people who have the problem that we solve, but have no idea that coaching is a potential solution for it. And so there's so much work to be done just in the education and awareness. We're not a place of scale where we can tackle all of that. And so helping us kind of narrow in on the channels of people who already believe in the concept, are educated on that, and then just getting them to pick us through that unique experience that they have when they interact with our company. And for the founders listening in, what is down channel? So more bottom of the funnel. So basically they're, instead of just becoming aware of your service or your company, they're already closer to that buying process where they're thinking, yes, I want to do coaching. Now who's the right provider for me? I love that. And honestly, I think that's where most early stage companies need to be. We've said this on so many different of our episodes now from B2B or B2C companies where ads early on are not effective. I don't. And I will, I will die on that hill. I think you need to have enough data to understand who your customer is to yeah. optimize for outcomes like targeting is so much better but you know whether it's Cita Lash or Carol they both said very similar things and 
the best thing you can do. And I love that you talked about education. Carol Lee from Providence Mills, B2C company, and she said they spent a lot of time early on educating. And what you're saying is a lot of people didn't know that they necessarily needed coaching. And so you focused on educating and going in those channels so you can get them closer to a conversion because you might not have a lot of time or the the means and resources as an early stage company to try to move them all the way through the, the entire funnel. So I love, love that you all did that. And something yeah. you also mentioned when we originally spoke was one of your channels that has worked really well for you all today is growing your IG following. So, you know, you're in the tens of thousands and you were able to, I mean, nearly for me, five exit in over a year. So you mentioned that it was about doing the right thing and focusing on providing value to the the community so they feel welcome. Can you walk us through what that that looks like? So you did the down, you know, down channels. And I would say IG is more on the upper end, so mm-hmm. more top of funnel. What are you all doing really well there for for founders listening in? And what do you what advice would you have for them? I think it's about being realistic about what you expect of each channel and when. And so we needed to get clients and dollars in the door. And so that's why we focused first on the really bottom of the funnel. How do we convert these people who are already aware while also knowing that the longer term strategy is, I don't want to give all my money to Google or Yelp for the rest of my life. So how do we build up some of these organic channels, but be realistic that overnight, they're not going to just start converting and bringing all these clients. And so in the beginning, you know, when you look at IG and you just look at accounts that are doing really well, and there's, it feels like there's even some sort of like trick to it. And so, and I think that's what's a lot of business. Like people think that there's just some magic trick that somebody else knows, and that's going to be the thing that's going to get them there. And I've not found that if someone knows it, please tell me, but it's really just constantly doing the right thing and making one good choice after another. And so for us on Instagram, that was really about providing a ton of value to people that we serve, even to the point where you know, we have downloadable guides that give you every single step of how to do a career transition. And it's like, people go, well, why are you giving all that away for free? And I firmly believe because you're building goodwill with people and they, if they could do it on their own, they would. And there's still a value to our service beyond what we provide for free. And that's the same way we approach Instagram, which is like every post we put so much thought, so much research, so much time into to really share value that people can actually do something with it, take it away. So then they're following us, not just because it's quippy or cute, but because they're literally getting something out of it. And over time, that's allowed us to build that following enough where we are starting to see the conversions coming out of it. And we also hired an amazing social media manager. So I don't want to bypass that either, because I think hiring the right talent and people who are truly experts and like live and breathe that thing makes all the difference. Mm -hmm. I love that you mentioned that, though, and it goes back to the education piece is that, you know, for us, this podcast is, you know, our top of funnel and it's the education piece. We get so many founders who end up learning about all the other stuff we do. And they're like, for example, if they apply to our accelerator, they're like, I have listened to the podcast. I have gone to the events now and I got so much. I just imagine if I did this thing, what it would actually do. Yeah. And we get the same thing. Why are you all giving away this free content and you could charge X amount? And I'm just like, but also we go back to what our ethos are and our values and our mission. It's like, well, because women founders are stuck at 4%. 
Mm-hmm. So if we keep doing and operating the same way the rest of the ecosystem is, and we're not giving anything of value, and we're like, it's always guarded by a paywall, then are we really helping ourselves fulfill our mission? So I'm so happy you mentioned that. It's you adding value on those platforms, which, I mean, I checked out of Instagram because I felt like there was not enough value being added other than pretty pictures. Yeah. And I'm like, that's great, but I just don't, <laughs> I don't want to be here for that. So, so happy you all are doing that. And- I- Oh yeah, go ahead. Just I feel like people a lot of times have the perception that it's it's one or the other. Like you're either being a savvy business person or you're doing the right thing. And I firmly believe that even if you can't measure it exactly, like those two things are aligned. And I'll get that feedback all the time, even with our team. Like I'm super passionate about. I want to help our coaches make more money, and as they continue to grow and expand here. And I think people think that's oh, you're being so altruistic or whatever. And I'm like, no, if they're making more money and they're growing with us, they're going to do even better work. They are going to be the best in the business because they're attracted here and that's what we want to do. And so I feel like there's always this perception that you're just being nice and, and it's not, it is. And I think it's the right thing and your ethos and what you stand for. But I also think it's good business. Absolutely. My, one of my favorite um, books is called The Go-Giver. And it is super easy read, but it talks about this is that one of the, one of the best pieces of business strategy you could ever do is the art of giving, but it also talks about in order for you to be a good giver, you have to be a good receiver as well. And so it is, Mm. it is good business. It's just like, we strategically do this podcast because we know it's great content and that people are going to be like, this is dope as fuck. I want to be a part of this tribe yeah, or a good chunk of them. So I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree with that. It's like two things can be true at the same time. It's like you can give back and you can also make money off of it. So Mm -hmm. I'm so happy you brought that up. And what I love about what you've done is not only have you been able to scale this company, but now you're in the multi-millions, you bootstrapped it. And, you know, you mentioned when we spoke that you did it by being creative, scrappy, and you made good choices. So you, you already talked a little bit about that in some of the the other questions we asked you, but can you walk us through what that looked like in action in terms of like the key components for you to bootstrap? Because, you know, we do a combination of women on this show who have bootstrapped or they've done the funding route. And mm-hmm. we love being able to chat through with guests, like, you know, how you made it happen. Because I think today, so much of the narratives get overshadowed by venture capital when the reality is less than 1% of founders will get access to that vehicle and 2% of that goes to women. And so I love being able to talk to women like you who have done it without that. So yeah, tell us what creative scrappy and good choices in action looked like and what are like the key things you think embody that for your business? I think we're lucky in that in order to get our business off the ground, it, it isn't super capital intensive. And I mean, for my co-founder and I, we started with $8,000 a piece. We put that in, we built a website, boom, we're up and running. Granted, obviously there's a million other things that happen behind the scenes, but we were in that, like, let's get something started and learn and build phase. If I were to do it again, I wouldn't have done it exactly the same way, but it was possible. We worked with the knowledge that we had then. Like I said before, I don't think there's like one thing that we did. I think every single day, if I can look back and we're a little bit better, we're a little bit smarter, we're a little bit more established, or we had a process where there wasn't a process before, 
that's how we've gotten here. But I think it's been through a few things, getting really creative with how we've gotten work done. So whether that's like not being ashamed to ask for favors or to barter, even at the place where we are in our business right now, like our SEO agency, we coach their senior leaders and they, and we've swapped services. They provide SEO services for us. Like that enabled us to work with this great firm that maybe we wouldn't have been able to fit in the budget otherwise. So I think people think there's like one perfect model that's going to follow for each thing, but it's like, what's the best way we can optimize this? We have this finite pool of resources. Maybe this person can do half their time coaching and half their time doing this other thing and just feeling it out in a way that at the end of the day accomplishes the objective. And I think in business, you hear all the time, like, well, you had to pivot and you're always pivoting and doing the next thing. I just, I don't think it's that as much as it's just a shift. And you're just constantly like, okay, well, we got to dial this a little differently over here. And now we got to focus on this over here. And so I feel like we've just been creative in how we've used the resources to be able to do that effectively and just stay really uh, nimble as we go through it. I love that the shift when you're able to because it, it reminds me of, you know, we, I don't know if you, Sandy Castro, she's in Chicago as well. She's on the nonprofit side and they scale to the multi-millions. And she talks about, you know, the flywheel effect. She was like, it's just all these little things that add up into yeah. the one really big thing and going back yeah. to experimenting, you know, or in order for you to even get there and figure out what your flywheel is, you have to figure out all these different things. What do you feel has been the biggest shift since to get you to at least this place, what was one of the biggest shifts? And I'm sure it was an accumulation, but the biggest shift for you to even experience doubling year over year where you're like, wow, this is really a great platform or strategy that we're tackling that works really well for us. Probably investing in the team. And I think that's hard because there's a practicality and reality to, you know, the budget that you have and where you can invest in it. I think we made fear-based decisions for quite a while. And the time, like the social media manager, for example, is a perfect example of that. Like, could we post our own things on Instagram? Were we doing that? Yes. And then we saw we invest in this, boom, five times over for having someone who could bring just a different level of intensity, a different skill set than we could. So I would say in the past year and a half, two years, we've really place bigger bets and been a little bit riskier in from a budgetary standpoint in terms of investing in the team because we fundamentally believe that that was going to allow us to get there faster and so I think that's probably the biggest thing and while you know there's always that creative component and sometimes that's the best you can do is like I can pay a freelancer two hours a week to do this thing and that's what we're working with for right now knowing when okay you've moved past that and it's time to bring an expert in and so I think getting out of some of the kind of band-aid approaches that we had had and being like, okay, we're ready for the big girl version of this in this particular area has been scary, but has helped us reach those goals quicker. How did you, I, I love this, but how did you get, how did you get out of, and I'm thinking just through what our founders would ask right now. Yeah. Because I watch them and the, one of the biggest growing pains that I see is when they're making their first few hires mm -hmm. and it's getting out of their own way of, I know this is critical, but I keep 
I keep second guessing myself or kind of shooting myself in the foot because maybe they'll say, well, I can just do it or Mm -hmm. they have a hard time delegating. So I know this was hard for you all, but what helped you to get out of your own way and having that track in your brain? Because it is scary when you're doing that first hire. It's like, are they going to, this is a big investment. So, so what helped you all overcome that and, and keep overcoming it? Because I think we had like 16 steps along the way. We didn't go from two of us founders and, you know, our co- some coaches to hiring six-figure salary people the next day. Like we hired people part-time. We went through a program called Praxis where you could hire super, super smart young people who have chosen not to go to college, but they do an apprenticeship that places them in startups because they're looking for a different path in life. And we hired some folks through that who were just really great and you get them at an affordable price. And so after having done that, that kind of gave us the confidence, okay, now we're ready for this next level of thing. And then this next level of thing. So we didn't make the jump overnight into like, this is a W2. There's all these HR considerations and legal considerations. If something doesn't go well, we had a lot of intermediary steps. Um, which I mean, goes back to the fundamentals of coaching, which is like, how do you break it into the tiniest piece and to do the next thing that's going to get you to the next thing and the next thing. And I feel like back to what we were saying in the beginning about like, you think everything needs to be perfect, but it doesn't. You just need to do something that's better than what you were doing yesterday. This reminds uh, me of our conversation with Heather Udo that said one of her biggest mistakes early on was thinking that she had to hire traditionally. Mm -hmm. and think she was like don't underestimate the power of a 1099 worker (laughs) like and especially given this market how many people want flexibility they want freedom in how they work they might not want a full-time job but that does not mean you're not getting a very valuable person and talent to your team just because they don't want to be full-time so I'm so happy you walk through the realities of that because it's not pretty there's like you said earlier there is not a, a, a formula to it so I love that you actually helped us segue a little bit into this beautifully, but you've recruited 35 different co and you're constantly recruiting and you've created a really great culture. So I would love for us to first focus on the recruitment aspect. I think given where the world is at today, finding really great talent is really hard because going back to a lot of people are just reassessing what they want to do right now. And you better create a really good case study for why they should go with you which I think mm-hmm. that's how it should be. So how are you all promoting and a- attracting the right talent to be coaches? What do you all, th- what do you think you all do really well? I think for the coaches, there's a few things. One is people are really attracted to the business model and we designed it intentionally. And from the start, when we started this business, We always set out to serve our clients, but very quickly we realized we have to serve these coaches and how we're doing this also. Most people get into coaching because they want to help people. They're really passionate about working with one-on-one. They don't get into it because they wanted to build a business and they wanted to do accounting and they wanted to do business development. But by default, that's what most of them were doing. They were becoming 
solopreneurs because there really weren't options like Amalabita when we first started. Now there are many more options, which is fantastic. But we knew right off the bat, like we have to create a model that's serving these people because what would inevitably happen is they would start their business. They wouldn't be able to do all of that. And then they would go back to their day job. And now we've just lost a really great coach in the marketplace. And so we do all of the administration, all of the business development, all of the marketing. And so coaches can really just show up and coach. And when people are doing their research, as most coaches do, they find us and they're attracted to that concept. That's kind of the baseline. And now that it is getting more and more competitive, that's not, we can't rest on that. I think the second thing is what you alluded to, which is the culture. And almost every single applicant we get mentions in their application, like your company felt different. This is the culture commandment that I love. This is why I'm applying because this felt like the place for me. And so what that has done has brought us such a pool of applicants that for us, then it becomes, how do we find the right ones? As you mentioned, it seems like everybody is a coach these days. And so how do we figure out what are the right credentials? What's the right skill set that's going to have people be successful, not just as coaches, but as coaches at Amalavit? You've mentioned this a couple of times now, your cultural commandments. And Mm -hmm. we hear about culture so much today. It can feel very vague, but you already started like diving into a little bit of what attracts people. And I think culture is a, a big part. And if you're not intentional about it, which I think it's years into the business when companies start, you know, expanding and they're like, oh my God, we really need to have ethos. And I'm like, that's a little too late. And I think totally. you start building in a really toxic culture um, that created its own thing without intentionality. So can you walk us through what does building culture and the culture at Amalavita look like in action? So you mentioned cultural commandments, but are, is that the core of it? Or are there other things that you are specifically doing that defines that feeling these people feel when they interact with you? So I do think it's wise when you're first starting out to sit down and define what that means to you. For us, that was writing out these statements that became our cultural commandments. It could be statements, it could be values, it could be behaviors that you want to see, but it's sitting down and saying, what do we want it to feel like? What do we want people to do and say when we're not around? Like, what is that behavior that we want to create? And what is in alignment internally and externally? I think that has to match. Like what service or product you're creating has to align with the culture that you're fostering. And so we did that and it felt, it feels silly almost to sit down and like, this is our culture when it's you and your co-founder or you by yourself or you in a 1099 that you're initially working with. But to your point, it's so much harder to shift later on because at the end of the day, it's not about we do happy hours or we do this fun summer Fridays. Like all that stuff is great, but it's really about how decisions get made, how people treat one another. It's like the little micro things throughout the day that shape people's feeling and experience. And I think that's so much easier to create in the beginning and then continue to build from, then try and shift down the road. So we literally sat down, wrote them all out, put them on our website. We put them on our social media. Like we're extremely public about 
what those are. They're the first thing that we go over when someone onboards with us, rewarding and incentivizing those behaviors. So like when you see that, it could be a financial reward or it could be as something as simple as just like a shout out on Slack because someone did something that really represented that behavior. Um, And then the transparency piece, like here's why decisions get made this way. Here's how it links back to what we said we stand for. And here's how me as the founder, I'm showing up differently or in alignment with what we say we believe in. I'm so happy you you mentioned this because this is something we have our founders in the accelerator map out. There's actually templates for this online called culture design mapping. And it's how do you put those things, things that can feel like values can feel very intangible. How do you put them into practice? And one mm-hmm. of my favorite things that they do with this mapping is put it into even if statements. So for example, one of our biggest value is quality over quantity. That is number of members we have in our community. That is number of people we have in our accelerator program. And so in action, that is quality, even like even over quantity. Like, so we know in action every day that the way we make decisions that are in alignment with our vision of impact and What's important to us is that are we making this decision because it's quantity based and it feels exciting or does it hold up to the quality that we're we're creating? And so I'm so happy you mentioned mentioned that in terms of really being true to those those ethos and those values. And one of the things I really love that you and I initially talked about are headlines Mm -hmm. as well and the pressures we put on ourselves and. I think this is where mapping out your culture helps too, to keep you focused on what actually matters to get you to where you want to go. But you and I, when we originally spoke and what stood out was the pressure we put on ourselves as founders, because we are inundated with so many headlines, how much capital someone raised, this person's exit or da 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 and you might even feel really excited for them, but it sometimes makes you feel like, wow, am I failing? Am I doing enough? And we don't even have the context, right? And so what advice or, or even your own experience, how did you navigate the headlines? And you and I even chatted where it's like, there's so many things popping up in your space, even though mm-hmm. you all were the originals and you're like, wow, they have more resources. They're, you know, maybe going a little faster. But what has helped you stay aligned with your vision of impact so you aren't making decisions based on that pressure to compare yourself to these other players? It's hard. And it's, I don't think it's over. You know, it's something that I have to constantly grapple with. I think there's a perception that if you don't go the VC route and you don't do that sort of headline path that you're not ambitious. And so I feel like constantly reiterating that we still do have a big vision. Like we want to be the world's leading coaching company. And beyond that, we think this is bigger than coaching. We want to be a brand where adults go for happy. And that might take a million different forms. So there's still a big thing that we're all marching toward. And we still talk about that a lot, but we might not get there in three years. <laughs> you know, it's, we won't get there in three years. It's going to be a lot longer of a journey for us. And I think remembering that businesses were built this way for a long time, really, really great ones. And this is a pretty recent kind of phenomenon with the whole VC, get as 
big as you can, as quick as you can is a component of it. I think thinking through what we'd be losing if we went that path is important. And what we've, cause we've gone down and we've explored it time and time again, like let's, let's reconsider. Is it now a time where we take a different funding approach and we just go, what would we be losing? And we're not willing to sacrifice the integrity of the service or the culture. And so if we feel like we can do that more quickly while maintaining the integrity of those two things, we'll do But for right now, that's not been the case. And then I think the last thing is like, what are we here for? I'm going to love your life. Like I, if we're not doing that ourselves, then we're frauds. And what is this all for? And I have a one-year-old, my co-founder has two little ones at home. Like we still want to be whole people while we're building this really big vision. And so it's continued to be important to us to be in the driver's seat of the timeline and the accelerator. And so that ultimately, when I think about that and that I get to go home and see my daughter at four o'clock every day, cause that's what's important to me. Like that makes it worth it versus, yeah, we could probably be a lot bigger by now if we had taken another path. I am so happy you mentioned this because the, uh, another theme we see amongst the women we've had on this, this podcast who have scaled, whether VC backed or bootstrapped is they're all very clear about what impact and success looks like to them. Mm -hmm. And the thing that bums me out often is when we get, I would say it's probably 50, 50, 50% of founders that come to us that are trying to raise 50% of them are not clear. Even the ones that aren't necessarily in our tribe, they're not clear why it's just that they have been told that's what success looks like. Right. And in my mind, I, and I not even in my mind, I'll tell them if you don't get clear on why, your company has already failed. Like it has already failed. And whether you get pushed out of your company because you lost control of it because you were never clear on why. But again, this goes back to those headlines. It's that success does, your your version of success doesn't matter about, no one else matters in that equation. But the issue with this space is so often, it's hard to even see where we blend and unblend with all of the crap that's around us. So I'm so happy you're clear on that and what your vision of impact looks like. So tell us what has been one of your... Do you mind if I just add one thing to that? Because I think yeah, it is true. And there's the like what people say, but like who are these people and have you talked to them and have you learned their experience? And I think people underestimate the value of just having those conversations. So the last time that we explored the VC path, my goal, one of my goals for that quarter was like, I'm going to have 10 conversations with people who have gone this path and hear from them. Not necessarily whether they would recommend it or not, because it's so personalized, but what are the things that they gained and what are the things that they lost? And then are those things, things I'm willing to gain and lose? And so I feel like before you commit to something huge, that's going to really impact your business have a bunch of conversations with people who have been there and do you want what they have or not? And then that might guide it. And ultimately where we kind of landed is, can we get to the end goal in another way? If yes, then we're not going to go down that path. If no, we'll consider it. And in the meantime, we've been able to keep marching forward. And so unless that changes, we're going to keep doing that. Yes. And again, We've said this so many time on the times on this podcast. There's no wrong option unless it's the option that's not in alignment with your vision of impact. 
If it's mm-hmm. not in alignment with you, it is the wrong option. VC can be wonderful. Bootstrapping can be wonderful. Right. But if it's just not in alignment, then that's where failure is. Literally, you already kind of killed yourself off before you got started. So yeah. I'm so happy that you mentioned that and understanding optionality. Optionality is really important. What are your options and what feels best? And if you want balance, VC is not it. <laughs> you are not getting <laughs> balance. I mean, at any early stage company, like I'm sure at the beginning, because you said you have a one-year-old, mm-hmm. at the beginning, you probably did not have that much balance. That's no. just the reality. But once you're a few years in, if you're still doing 80 hour, I can't stand, this is a tangent, but I can't stand when I hear founders that are like, we still do 80 hour weeks. And I'm like, you're six years in, you're doing it wrong. Right. You're doing it wrong. That's not success, bro. Um, so I'm so happy you mentioned that. So then tell us what has been one of your biggest mistakes you've made to date in this business that has become one of your best lessons as a It's so funny because we do leadership coaching as a huge component of our business. So I talk about leadership all day. And yet I still say that leading people is the hardest part of my job. It's uh, what you teach and what you preach is what you have to learn. It yes. is so true. It's so hard. And people are so messy and unpredictable. And so it's always difficult. But I think it probably goes back to, I mean, there's so many mistakes from the like not having a marketing strategy to being so fearful about we'd spend $20 on an ad and be like, why isn't it working? So I think really being realistic about timelines. But I think for me, the biggest piece is about investing in talent. And like I said, it it wasn't overnight. It's not always you go straight to it. But I do think you have to know the time and the place when you go, this band-aid isn't working. We need to really invest in this person. And creating the job is where it starts, not ends. Like then how are you keeping them happy? How are you creating opportunities? How are you proactively giving them more money if you can, not because you're trying to do the least that you can pay, but because they deserve it and you want to keep them around. And so I think that was a big shift for me in not necessarily letting go of control, but taking bigger, bolder moves and realizing that two plus two can equal five when you get the right people and the right talent in the room and you don't have to do it all yourself. And that's so tough for women founders and some men too, but we've seen this as an ongoing theme of women. We are, again, socialized to be the nurturers, to take everything on where it's like, we're the multitaskers. I'm like, I don't want to be a multitasker. No, I'm not. (laughs) Actually, I get it. The zone where I'm like, I don't want to multitask because I'm not happy multitasking. So absolutely. And, you know, as you know, one of our mottos and our main motto is fuck 4%. And we say that because women founders make up nearly half of entrepreneurs, but we bring in about 4% of total revenues. You are in the very small percentage of women who have gone beyond a million in revenue, only 1.7%. So tell us, what are you focused on today to grow your business revenues to the next level? The biggest thing for us right now is really on that retention piece. So it's the biggest lever in our model that we think we need to focus on. Like I mentioned, there's all the kind of pieces of the puzzle. In the beginning, we were paying way too much to acquire clients. We've gotten that cost for acquisition really down work. We convert people really well. Once they're talking to us, then it's about how do we keep them in our orbit? And it feels a little bit 
like a conflict in that sometimes we work ourselves out of a job if they come to us to achieve a goal and we do a really good job of helping them achieve that goal. However, what we believe is what's on the wall, which is always be bettering and that this one thing isn't the only thing that we can help people solve. And we're actually doing a disservice to clients if we just let them do that one thing and walk out the door. So people might come to us and say like, I'm really unhappy. I need, I need a new job. And that might be true, but there's usually so much more underlying that. Like, well, why were they in that job? And if we help them get a new job, are they going to find themselves in this position six months or two years down the road? How do we put them more where they're leading at and crafting their own career path and life experience versus waiting for things to happen to them that then they're reacting to? And so what we're trying to do is a component of that education piece where it's like, hey, yes, we can help you do this, but this is why this transactional goal is not where this should should stop. You should think more strategically and long-term about your life and your career. And it's also, of course, good for the business and that we are retaining clients a lot longer. So we're really working now on how we go about that to get people to say, okay, I achieved this goal. Let's focus on my health now. Or now I'm a leader and now I have to lead other human beings. How do I do that effectively? And really have them realize that beyond just the painful thing that got them to coaching, there's so much more value that they can get out of it. That, the model of coaching reminds me of why I stick with therapy. It's that, you know, maybe I got in because I was in a, a really tough time, but when I'm in my good times, I also want to optimize for happiness. I loved what you said about what your brand, you know, long-term will be is mm -hmm. I want to also, how can I stay in this place or know how to get back to this place? So I love that. And retention is a huge, huge piece of what makes great businesses. So tell the audience, how can we support you in making that a reality and making sure that you are getting that retention that you really desire? I think it's helping us still on the awareness and education piece. So the next time you're with a friend and they've complained to you about their job three <laughs> happy hours in a row, like making them aware that coaching is an option or when you're having a conversation with someone who's like, yeah, I still feel like after the shift to remote work, like I just can't get my habits in a place where I feel good and I want to fix this for myself long-term. It's so funny because when we started this business, like my co-founder, also a former consultant, we thought we were going to get all people who were burned out, management consultants wanted a new career. And it's been so much broader than that. It's people who believe in bettering themselves, who really want to do the work and make change in their lives and maybe don't have the tools or accountability to do it. So that I think helps the retention piece. If we get the people who are like, I believe in this, I want to create this life I love. I have a big dream. I want to write that book. I want to do that thing, but maybe don't know where to get started. And where can they connect with you? alvcoaching.com or on social at alvcoaching. Thank you so much for listening to Get Shit Done. We hope you got the traction tips you need to grow your company on your own terms. If you want to learn more traction tips like these from badass women entrepreneurs weekly, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, queen, show us some love by rating and reviewing this podcast. This really helps us reach and serve more women like you in slaying their way to traction. 
And if you're looking for more support on your scaling journey, head on over to shegetsshitdone.com slash join, where you'll become a part of the movement of women entrepreneurs giving 4% the middle finger. Until next time, queen, I'm Alex Batdorf reminding you, you got this. Now go out there and get shit done.